the more intersectional identities that you have that are marginalized. So the, the more, like if you look at race, gender, and disability, the more that they intersect, the more likely it is that there's going to be suboptimal outcomes. You're going to look at um, the likelihood that that person's going to have the same type of educational attainment as someone who isn't that race or isn't that gender or both is is different. The likelihood that they're going to be a homeowner or they're going to not be in the criminal justice system or all of the different you know markers, social determinants tend to be at higher risk. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. On this week's episode, I'm talking with powerhouse Marenike Giwa Anaiwu. Marenike is a global advocate, educator, disabled person of color, non-binary woman, and parent of children on the autism spectrum in a neurodiverse, multicultural, twice-exceptional, zero-different family. She's a prolific writer and social activist whose work focuses on intersectional justice, meaningful community involvement, human rights, and inclusion. Marenike has presented at the White House, the UN, and numerous conferences, and her work has been featured in the New York Times, Psychology Today, Atlantic, The Today Show, and much more. Marenike was the first Black woman to chair the NIH-funded Global Community Advisory Board for HIV Clinical Research and the first Black Executive Board of Directors member of the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network and Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network. I could go on and on listing credentials because Marenike's work is so impressive and so extensive. For this conversation, we focused on what it was like for Marenike to get her autism diagnosis as an adult, the valuable knowledge that parents can receive from other autistic adults, the impact of getting diagnosed late for black and brown kids, and how intersectionality can help us understand the consequences of an autistic diagnosis in marginalized communities. Such a rich conversation. I hope you enjoy it. And a quick reminder that with this season of the podcast, I've also just launched Playback Fridays, whereby every Friday I'll be re-releasing a powerful episode from my library. Tune in for episodes with people like the out-of-sync child author Carol Kronowitz, author of The Explosive Child, Dr. Ross Green, NeuroTribes author Steve Silberman, my original Asher specials, and episodes on things like navigating tricky dynamics with family who don't get it, transitioning to homeschool, and so much more. If you're already subscribed to this podcast, you don't have to do anything. Just keep an eye out for new episodes on Fridays showing up in your podcast feed. Lastly, I want to give a quick shout out to new supporter of the podcast, Sarah Weiner. Thank you so much for joining my Patreon community and helping me cover the cost of producing this show. If you get a lot out of this podcast and want to join Sarah in supporting it, you can sign up with Patreon to contribute as little as $2 a month. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash tiltparenting. Thanks so much. And now here is my conversation with Marenike. Hello, Marenike. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Oh my goodness, there's so much that we could talk about today. And I'm just really excited to have a a rich conversation with you. And I'm assuming that there are going to be listeners who are unfamiliar with who you are in the world and the work that you do. So I was wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about your own personal story and how it kind of led you to be doing the work that you do today. Sure. Well, first, hi, everyone. Thanks for being here. And I really appreciate your time and your interest. So my name is Marenna Kay, and I am involved in a lot of, of disability justice advocacy and social justice work as a person who's neurodivergent um, and a parent of, of disabled and neurodivergent children. But I guess some of it kind of came about, I would say by accident, but I don't think there really are any accidents. But essentially, I was born in the United States in the Midwest. My parents were immigrants from West Africa, came from college, here for college, ended up kind of stuck here because of this one military coup or another going on. And so didn't really feel comfortable bringing us kids who were born in America. And that was kind of what we knew, you know, kind of, I guess, spoiled <laughs> into, you know, political unrest. And so they were waiting things out and it kept waiting. And it just looked like, okay, looks like we're going to be here for some time. Let's get out of this cold and snow. 
And we moved to Texas. And so I, you know, finished school there. And then, you know, I went off to college and um, kind of lived my life. And so in all of these different experiences that we had, like when we were in the Midwest moving around for this post-bac program or this um, preceptorship or this grad program, my brothers and I were always different. But, you know, we attributed a lot of that difference to our parents' heritage. It's not that there weren't other, you know, students of color or what have you. My parents, you know, lived in international student housing for a while. So there were people around, but it wasn't the majority. But but the difference was it didn't seem it seemed like it was an okay thing. In Texas, those where I really noticed the difference more so than, you know, when you're in the Midwest and then, you know, you know, people talk about Minnesota nice and then you like, and then we were in Missouri, Nebraska, Kansas, and we were younger. So I think things are different when you get a little older. You know, in Texas people were a lot more blunt (laughs) about things that they didn't understand or like, or they would ask odd questions. And so for a lot of the time, you know, I just really felt different. I felt like an outsider a lot of the time. And I did think some of it was possibly race related or whatever. Um, And I was in gifted and talented classes. So there was some of that too, the competition with your peers, but I always felt different. I always knew I was different my whole life, but I just didn't know what what exactly the difference was. And at home, it was accommodated. That's just how she is. Oh, she just does things that way. Or this is, you know, she likes to eat on that side of the table or whatever. But outside of home, it was like this hidden, weird rule to life, like a whole bunch of them that I couldn't figure out. And like, and, you know, so I just had to learn to kind of try to play the game and pretend and figure out what to do. And so I grew up and I I worked and I did an AmeriCorps program and I got my undergraduate degree and I worked in the nonprofit sector for a while. And then I went back for my grad degree. And I always cared about working with the community and, you know, those type of, you know, those things were always really appealing to me. And I was involved in a lot of social justice related work, working with various different uh, marginalized communities. And kind of fast forward, um, I became an adoptive parent. And then later married, and then I became a biological parent as well. And so all of my children have various disabilities. And so in trying to learn more, trying to help them, trying to educate myself, that's what prompted me to go to graduate school because I was I just felt like I was on the outside looking in and I just couldn't get straight answers and wasn't taken seriously and wanted to be able to make sure that they had the best outcomes. And in learning more and advocating for them is when I kind of was pointedly asked by one of the <laughs> one of my children's providers about my own neurology. And so I'd had some other diagnoses. I'd struggled with, you know, depression and anxiety, you know, for a number of years when I was younger, when we were being put in the gifted classes, you know, had the different neuropsych testing and, you know, cognitive testing and all of those types of things. But I was diagnosed in adulthood with ADHD and inattentive ADHD. And then later um, I was asked, you know, if I had been evaluated for autism. And I was like, no. And they're like, but you're just like these two autistic kids that you have, <laughs> you know, not to mention my other children. I've one, you know, intellectual disability. I've got, you know, kids with ADHD. We've had a little mix, you know, in the house and <laughs> like neurodiversity central. And so I started doing some research and it just, and it really started making a lot of sense to me. I was like, okay, well, this is why I didn't pick up on this thing, or this is why this worked for me, or I wasn't alarmed when my child did this or that, because I had an understanding because a lot of it was similar to me. And so it was just really, really, it was so eye-opening. It, it was it's such a paradigm shift to realize that I'd been basically undiagnosed my entire life. It was almost like being, I don't know, like the Truman Show or something, like finding out things, something is completely different. Your reality was really different than what you thought it was. And I just wanted to kind of learn more and share more with others. I didn't see a lot of people that looked like me and my kids. I saw, I I read a lot of things that didn't really seem right. It didn't didn't resonate with me. And I, I just wanted to kind of I didn't really have much of a filter. So I just kind of would ask questions or share my ideas. And it just kind of started to grow, um, you know, in terms of like my writing and my volunteering. And it just kind of really morphed into something that really is, you know, I guess kind of like a, like a bedrock of my life, so to speak. I can't see myself doing anything else. Like I'm just really, it's important to me to, you know, to talk about neurodiversity, to talk about acceptance and inclusion and to work with entities to make it happen and to empower people to try to make our world more equitable and, you know, a more accepting place for everyone. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear your story and that you were someone who was involved in social justice work and and working with marginalized communities and cause-related work. 
it seems like you, you took all of that experience and, and that passion and with this new information, it was kind of like the perfect storm in a good way of being able to really affect change and be such a vocal leader in this movement. Yes, I really think so. I feel like a lot of the experiences that I had worked with refugee communities and I worked in, you know, HIV um, treatment and prevention and Title I schools and all of these different types of programs. And so I feel like it it did, it really did kind of come together (laughs) and allow me to be able to use some of the, the tactics and tools that I'd learned in this capacity. Like I think about a lot of the work that I learned from some of the luminaries who, you know, had been trained by people who were in ACT UP in the 80s and some of the things that they had done and how farther along they are in terms of the evolution of community involvement, engagement and leadership, as opposed to this siloed way that it's done with, you know, developmental disabilities and with autism. And and so I felt like if I see this happening over here, this is possible. Can't it be possible for us? Why aren't we trying this? Why aren't we doing this? You know? Yeah. When you were identified as being on the autism spectrum, you mentioned this kind of Truman Show moment. And I I love that. I mean, there are many listeners of this podcast who have similarly discovered their own neurodivergence through going through the process with their kids, whether that's ADHD or twice exceptional or being autistic. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little more about that, because I've heard such different responses when I've talked with autistic adults who discovered as adults that that was their diagnosis, what that integration was like for them. So neurodiversity is a fact of life. And, you know, I feel like there's a lot more neurodivergence in the population than we know. And though, of course, not every person who has an autistic child is autistic themselves. But typically, there's, I feel, generally, there's some type of neurodivergence of some sort, whether it's ADHD, or whether it's, like you said, being twice exceptional, whether it's, but again, not always, but I think a lot of times people come to uh, a sense of awareness of themselves that's hard to develop when it's just you. But when you're, you know, when you have little people that you're responsible for and you're, you can kind of take, I guess, a little bit more, I wouldn't even say an objective point of view because it's not because it's your baby, but, but it's not you, it's external to you. So you get to, you're observing. And so for me, so I had all these different little diagnoses, you know, like I had a lot of challenges when I was young with not understanding a lot of the things about life, um, a lot of the discrepancies that, for, between what people say and what they do and injustice. And a lot of things were very, that I, I took very, was I was sensitive and I took things very hard and I knew I was different and I was just really tired of the work that it took just to navigate a, a typical day. And so I was suicidal from the age of 11 and 12. And I had a lot of challenges and I kind of wore different masks throughout my life. And so, you know, I had a a major depression diagnosis and then later I acquired some other diagnoses. And so it's like, every time I got one, it was almost like as if there's a a smudged mirror and someone cleans it a little and you can see a little more, you can see a little more, but it still was, I still couldn't see clearly. And then even, so even though I knew, okay, this impacts or this, this explains this, or this kind of, I can relate to this, but it, it never was really enough of anything. Now, ADHD, that cleaned a lot of the mirror when I, because I was like, wow, because in my mind, I knew about ADHD, you know, and everybody who I knew who had ADHD, were, they were, they, you know, when I grew up, they were on Ritalin, and they were like the, the stereotypical little Dennis the Menace. That kid that you, you like, but he just can't stop touching everything. He can't stop talking. He can't stop running. He's always up out of his feet. It was, again, the things that people are looking for. So the stereotypical little boy who isn't standing in line properly or, you know, just kind of the motor thing, like that's what ADHD was. And I was like, that is so not me. I can sit quietly in the room. I can entertain myself. I can this, you know, and I had so very little understanding of all of the ways, you know, the fact that I always my entire life lost so many pairs of keys, so many library books, textbooks, couldn't remember this, couldn't keep up with that, would go up the stairs and forget what I was going there for. Like my mind wandered all the time. You know, it's like my I was really busy internally, but I just didn't show it. It wasn't, you know, socially acceptable to. And so that cleared up a lot of things for me that helped me a lot. And I was like, wow, I just had no idea that other people's brains didn't do that, that they're sitting down trying to think of something and then their brain changes like with the wind, like every second. I didn't realize that 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 wasn't the way it is for everyone. I mean, I wouldn't know any different. I started to kind of pay attention to some of the the strengths that I had, like hyper-focusing and things that I could do and try to um, give myself supports, like things like calendars and reminders for my struggles. But but autism wasn't something that I knew much about. I didn't even, I would say I didn't even know enough about it to really have a negative 
you know, perception of it. It just really wasn't really on my radar. I knew about it from this one soap opera and a few things that I'd heard and read here and there, but I didn't really have much. It it wasn't a part of my life. And so when my daughter was born from the time she was very little, she, I was relieved actually, because I didn't know what to expect because I'd started parenting as an older, you know, as an adoptive parent. And so I started with a five-year-old and then a little older and so on. And then, so when I started with a newborn, everything that I'd read to prepare myself, everything I'd watched, I was just kind of concerned about what, you know, I wanted to be a good parent, but she, I was just so grateful. She made sense to me. She would make certain movements. And that's, that was a cue to me that, oh, she wants her diaper changed or she's hungry or she didn't like to sleep in the crib. I I just felt like it didn't feel right. She preferred to sleep in the bed. Like she, like she had these different ways about her, but everything made sense to me. I could kind of, I, I, I felt like we had this unspoken language, like this, you know, that we, this nonverbal communication that made sense to both of us. And she didn't like certain things, you know, the sound of the vacuum cleaner, or the sound of the blender. I didn't like those things either. So I just wouldn't. <laughs> I understood her and she was just so easy for me. And it wasn't till I took her to a Mother's Day Out program and they were asking me all these questions about her and like within her first week and they were confused and they were concerned and I didn't understand what they were concerned about. She was just fine seeing her through their eyes and then getting, you know, so going through the process and learning more about autism and the way that I guess the non-autistic brain thinks and all of these different things. And then kind of learning about myself, it really did feel like, um, you know, like I mentioned Truman says show. Sometimes I mention that it's like the sixth sense at the end when, um, <laughs> you know, when we find out that Bruce Willis has been a ghost this entire time and you just didn't know. And then you look back and there's all these signs and all these little things and they even show you a few of them. And I was like, wow, I looked back at so many things and I wish that I had known. I, I, there were th- expectations that I had of myself that were unfair. There were times that I could have taken better care of myself or built in some things to, to support myself or advocated for myself. I just looked back in, in hindsight and it, it made me both sad and happy. <laughs> like it made me sad because I saw a lot of the times that I had struggled unnecessarily and I wished I'd had this understanding, but it made me happy because I had always felt like, what the freak is wrong with me? <laughs> like, what is it? What, what is this stuff? Why, why can't I get it? What is going on that I can't just, I'm just off. I'm just wrong. And I realized that wasn't the case. And I just was so freeing, you know, to really understand, no, this is just who you are. This is just the operating system that you have. And and that was something that made sense to me because I had, as being a parent, I had always tried to make sure to affirm my children that you're not wrong. You're just different. Okay. You know, this, you're adopted and that's not a bad thing. This is just your reality. And this is who you are or, okay, so you're, this one is left-handed and most people are right-handed. So this is a little different, but that doesn't make it bad. We just have to figure out, okay, you know, how, what works, get a different type pair of scissors or whatever. So it was the same type of thing with me. It just really, I, I just really understood so much about, myself. And it, it was really cathartic. It was just, I don't know, I feel like it's one, it's been one of the most monumental experiences of my life. Wow. It sounds so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. It, it makes sense. And I bet there are a lot of listeners who are relating to that experience. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. 
That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. This may be a good time to mention a book that you co-edited that came out, I think in the past year called Sincerely, Your Autistic Child, What People on the Autism Spectrum Wish Their Parents Knew About Growing Up, Acceptance, and Identity. It's a wonderful book. Would you take a moment to tell listeners what they would expect in reading that book? Yes, I'm super excited about this. So um, Sincerely, Your Autistic Child is a project. So our um, the it was published by Beacon Press, who we love. You know, they're they they're a social justice press. They have so you want to talk about race and all these other different books. Like they have things that serious nonfiction that people don't want to talk about. And they're an independent nonprofit publisher. What happened is several years ago, I do um, right now I do equity um, consulting with autistic women and non-binary network, and I've been involved when I became more aware of my. Um, diagnosis. I've been involved in a lot of different groups. So I'm in, you know, some parenting groups and some self-advocate groups and some research groups and so on, like as a volunteer. And so this was one of them. And so they had created a, a guide, one for parents and one for youth, you know, kind of giving like a little explanation or pointers or tips about your child's diagnosis, what to expect, and then kind of living because, you know, diagnosis is one period in time and then you have the rest of your life. And so people had wanted more because a lot of what you get when my children were diagnosed, I was handed the 100 day kit. It has been revised since then and its content is, is better. Um, though the initial one was pretty fear mongering and <laughs> not written with much understanding of neurodiversity at all. And so this was a way of everywhere you turn, there's quote unquote autism experts, professionals and this and that. And then you're like, some of these people, okay, I'm like, okay, so you've worked with students or with clients for X amount of years. You yourself are not autistic. You're not raising a child that's autistic. You know, like your spouse is not autistic, but you're an expert. And I wouldn't ever dare say that I'm an expert on what it's like to, I don't know, I'm, I'm here in Texas and I, you know, went to school and got my, I went to college in California. So I've always been adjacent to Mexico. I wouldn't say because I live amongst Mexican Americans and I live in an area that has a lot of Latin A influence that that makes me an expert. Like it gives me some familiarity, but I'm certainly not an expert. It's not my lived experience. And so it just was odd to us that everyone who was giving all this advice, sometimes the advice was laughable. Like it like really was like, what? Are you sure? Like, are you telling people to do that? Like that makes no sense. Or you think that's why that happens? Or like it was like sometimes it was well-meaning and sometimes it was good and helpful, but sometimes it was just completely off. And so it was like, let's give people some pointers and some feedback, like things that you know, you've learned school of hard knocks style, you know, like you've made mistakes and you've learned this, or you figured this out about yourself, or you know this, but you were never able to express it. Let's kind of, if we could take those things, kind of like those little nuggets and share them with people, because most parents, 
really do want to do right by their kids, you know, and they care. And you can figure out a lot. You don't have to share the same neurology as your child to to learn about them and, and you know, learn how to accommodate them and care about them to a point. But you may not, you still don't necessarily relate. So sometimes it can be nice to have those that advice. And, and I thought about how helpful it had been for me as an adoptive parent to read the voice of adult adoptees, you know, because I've never been adopted. And so as much as I love my kids and love them, love them, love them as fiercely as I advocate for them. And as much as I feel like I'm sensitive to their experiences, it's not my lived experience. I'm adjacent to it, but it's not mine. And so there, it, it, you know, I can figure some things out and learn some things, but there's always wisdom in the voices of people who've had these actual experiences. And so it's been invaluable for me and I feel like it's made me a better parent. And so there was a book, um, a self-published book called What Every Autistic Girl Wishes Her Parents Knew. And so this one actually is kind of like expanding that concept. So we we took, we invited all of the people who were in the self-published book when we got the contract for this one to, if they wanted to contribute and all except for one were, were able to. And then we also invited new contributors because what we felt was they're starting to become this this schism, you know, and it's not that it hasn't been there before, but it's becoming, I think, more and more apparent to where there's autism parents on one side and autistic adults on the other side. And I don't think we need to be on sides. You know, we all want a lot of the same thing, which is for the things to be better for these kids, things to be better for pe- adults, because children do turn into adults. And we stay adults, you know, we're adults most of our lives. Um, if we're fortunate enough to live and, um, and for society to be better, we might not always agree on the mechanism or the route or the way to describe certain things, but there's a lot of shared interest. Basically, we felt like this is a way to say, hey, affirm some things that you know, maybe share some things that you didn't know, create this dialogue where it's not um, tension. And this one saying, no, you're not like my kid. And this one saying, you're doing everything wrong and you're ruining your child's life. Let's have a constructive dialogue. Let's talk to parents and let them know what they're doing right. Because they're doing a heck of a lot of things right that they may not realize because people are so hard on themselves and they don't see or they don't acknowledge the areas where you're doing a great job. And then there's some areas that you can prepare for that might be coming in the future, some possibilities, some, you know, potential risk factors, or there's certain things that you could do differently that would have a better, your, your child would hopefully respond better or, or be more at ease um, or have them in a different environment. And so we describe it as kind of like part memoir, part guide and part love letter, because there's some people in there who are writing about how their parents have been their rock. They've had their back. They've looked out for them and how much they love and appreciate that. And so we want parents to, to feel seen and heard because, it, you know, parenting is, you know, they say the toughest job you'll ever love, regardless of your child's neurology. It's, it's hard. There's no manual. You're just figuring it out and you, you do the best you can, but you make mistakes. So we wanted people to be able to own that they're, that they're, they're in this and they are trying and they care. And I, we also wanted people to, to not, their kids not to go through some of those things that we went through. Because if our parents had known better, um, a lot of us, they would have done better. And so th- that's the, the, the benefit of being able to have walked in those shoes before so that others don't have to. Um, you can deter them from the dead ends and the potholes. And so the book has people of all different backgrounds. We had a contributor that was a teenager who was unable to contribute, unfortunately, as she was working on another project. But we've got people in their early 20s. We've got people, you know, older than that. And then we've got even, you know, senior citizens. We've got like two grandparents in there. Um, we have people who are uh, Muslim and Jewish and agnostic and Christian and um, pagan. We have people who are speaking primarily. We have people who are non-speaking and type to communicate. We have people with advanced degrees and people who didn't even, you know, finish high school. We have people who live independently or live with a partner and others who live with their family, others who currently or have previously lived in congregate care or have 24 hour support, you know, like staff with them, um, people of different cognitive abilities and just racial backgrounds and just a little bit of everything um, because we want, you know, the spectrum. We wanted to give a, a full range of what people's lives are like. Most of the people in the book though not all, but many of them were assigned female at birth. Some of them still identify as a, a woman, you know, as, I mean, and there are a number who do not, who identify as um, non-binary or who identify as, you know, transmasculine or, you know, or gender neutral in some way. Um, and then we have a couple of people who were assigned male at birth, but there isn't anyone in the book who currently, who was assigned male at birth and identifies as a cisgender male. And that was kind of done intentionally also because in autism, there's so many voices. I mean, I'm grateful for the fact that we do have Temple Grandin, one of the most well-known autistic people and is obviously not male. And so it's, but so much about autism is 
focused on males, focused on male characters, focused, you know, the perspectives of, of males. And there's a lot of gender diversity in autism. And there's a lot of, you know, higher likelihood in, with autism and other forms of um, neurodivergence of the person being more likely to be, you know, LGBTQ. And so we wanted to reflect that because I think that's something that's concerning or for parents because we there's already things that they're looking into like, okay, well, my child might be predisposed to seizures or certain types of allergies or certain types of things happening with their, you know, joints or their mobility, suicidality or whatever. But what else should I think? uh, What else should I know? So your child might be more likely to um, not identify necessarily with the gender that they were assigned at birth. And it, it may or may not have anything to do with their sexuality. You know, I think that's important for parents to know when their children are young so that you don't accidentally scar them or, you know, say things that are harmful. It doesn't have to be this controversial thing that I think a lot of people feel that it is. It's really just all everything about us is like living in another country or in another planet that's different than the one you, you know, everyone else is from. So it's like spending your whole life speaking a foreign language, but no one taught it to you. You had to learn it on your own or, or being dropped off in a planet different than the one that you, you come from. So you have to try to learn the rules of this new country. So it's, it's because of that, things aren't going to, everything's not going to fit in jail in the same way. So I think rather than being frightened of it, if parents could be aware of it, if it's not, if it's not the case for your child, cool, that's fine. Have some awareness that might help someone else, you know, that in the future, that someone else that you know. And if it is something that, you know, ends up being a reality for your child, you can educate yourself and you can respond in a way that hopefully won't create a rift between you and your child. Yeah, I really appreciate you bringing that up about gender identity and just the the prevalence of of autistic and other neurodivergent people being part of the LGBTQ plus community. And actually, I'm just going to say this now for listeners who are listening to this, the next week, the episode is specifically talking about gender identity and differently wired kids. So we'll be really diving into that topic. So Thank you for for sharing that. And I just want to say to this book, it feels like such a generous gift for parents. It really is. It feels like a letter. It feels like you're reading a letter. You're getting like almost a dictionary or a translation guide to this other language, right? So such a valuable read if you're raising an autistic child and, and really want to do right by them and listen to the voices of actually autistic adults to learn from them. So it's just fantastic. Thank you. And I I just, I'm really glad that you're going to have that topic because I think it's so important. Like there's, you know, there's a concept, um, Dr. Nick Walker um, has um, a blog, um, Neurocosmopolitan. And then there's um, Dr. Remy Yurgo, they're both autistic, um, has a book where it talks about, you know, like some of the concepts of being neuroqueer. And all of these other things that autism, but other, other neurodivergences as well, just I think about myself and so many people that I know. I guess the assumptions that you make, because just like with ADHD, I didn't, I thought that was how everybody's mind worked. I knew with autism, although I didn't know what it was called, I knew that was, that I was different. I knew that I could hear the buzzing sounds that no one else could hear. And they, and that people would think that I was just making things up or being dramatic. I knew that certain things smelled really strongly to me or felt, you know, really pleasant or unpleasant. And other people didn't notice those things. I knew certain ideas got stuck in my head. Like those were things that were, it was quite clear to me that, people didn't feel or think that way. But gender was one that was completely different. And um, for me, in that I just assumed that everyone, this is just what you call this thing, you know, like, so for example, red is red in English, but it's rojo in Spanish, you know, or whatever. So this is just the name or a term for things. And so, you know, I thought about how you use the word flat, in, you know, in the UK, but you might say apartment, you know, in the United States or what have you. So just things are just called things for whatever reason, etymology can be, you know, arbitrary. And so I just felt like what you, if you have a vulva, you're called this. And if you have a, you know, scrotum, you're called this. And it's not that you really feel like it or don't feel like it. It's just a name. And just kind of like a parents might name their child Mary or John and you get older and you're like, oh, I'm not a Mary. I'm a Taylor or I'm a Sue. You know, they picked it because they're naming you after their grandparent or they, they named you after a, their favorite author or you were born at, at a certain time of night. It reminded them of this movie. But that doesn't mean that name 
fits you. That's what you were given, but it's just, it's just the name that you know, you're familiar with. It doesn't, it may or may not be for you, you know? And so I thought that was the case with everyone. Okay. You call this person a woman, you call this person a man, but no one really feels like it. It's just what you, it's just a name. It's like clothes that you put on, you know, and some clothes feel comfortable and some don't to discover that people actually felt because we know, you know, sex, you know, is, is biology, but gender is not, you know, it's, it's, it's in inner um, and social, social construct. And so to realize that people didn't feel that, oh, this is just a name. It doesn't really fit me. But, but there were people who actually felt like they identified with that name, like the concepts and the aspects of being that person and the body and all of those things. When I realized that, that you're supposed, I guess if, if it's you, then it's supposed to kind of gel, you know, and it, when it didn't, I was like, I was like, Oh, it was just really eye opening. So I think that just, there's a lot of things about the way that we think that when you're in order that you don't realize there's very few people that I know on the you know, the spectrum or even people who are not on the spectrum, but, you know, who are neurodivergent, who haven't come to kind of some understanding of, you know, maybe their gender identity or their sexuality. And that's even if they are, you know, identify as cisgender or as heterosexual. It's, you know, it's not necessarily about being queer, but it's just basically realizing that the way we experience, describe, um, view these things differ from that of the general population. Yeah, such a great description of that. Thank you. We'll be right back after this quick break. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Coe, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. This is a big question, but I don't want to not address this in this in this conversation. But I know that a big part of your work is intersectional justice. Um, I watched a talk you gave at the UN, which I'm going to have a link in the show notes um, on the panel for women and girls with autism from 2019. And you described the late diagnosis for children of color and for women is being um, kind of a perfect storm for a catastrophe. And so knowing who the audience is here, this is made up of parents and caregivers and educators who really want to be a part of this paradigm shift, this neurodivergent, uh, you know, revolution movement. Can you talk about how we can be a part of moving this forward and specifically related to this intersectionality piece, being Black and autistic and and all that goes with that. Yes, I do. And so I feel like, um, and I'm glad that you mentioned that because sometimes, not sometimes, a lot of the time, you know, when, you know, these things are brought up, people are like, well, we're talking about autism or we're talking about ADHD or we're talking about giftedness or this or that. Why, why are you bringing, you know, why are you talking about racial issues? Not that that's not important, but what does that have to do with this? Or why are you talking about gender? And it's really because, I think a lot of people don't understand that they're they're interwoven for so many of us. And so a marginalized identity, you know, like a person can be upper middle class, white, 
cisgender, heterosexual male, you know, that's supposed to be quote unquote, kind of like the creme de la creme, right? You know, <laughs> like you're supposed to have it easier, even though, again, every person can have different circumstances in their lives that can create hardship and challenges. We all, everyone has both privileges and oppressions. No one has just one or the other. If that person, if that person is, is autistic um, or has ADHD, so this having that disability, you are living a completely different life than your peer who might have all of those other characteristics that you have, but they're non-disabled. Like every single thing, like the world has now been made completely different for you. And it's like a layer has been draped over you that isn't on other people that they don't have. And the more marginalized identities that you have, the more layers that you have maybe cloaking your vision or obscuring your way. And so Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, um, who coined the term intersectionality, is the you know, scholar and uh, who described an example of being at an intersection. And so if you're at the center and then there's things, traffic coming from every single direction, so north, south, east and west, you can get have an impact, uh, you know, two things at once. So north and east can collide or west and south, you know, or whatever. You don't know which ones are going to collide, how hard they're going to hit, which one's going to hit you first, if they're all going to hit you, but you are just basically, you know, kind of at that center point. And that's what it is with intersectionality. It's like, you can't, it's never just autism. I mean, the part of the reason why I think I went so many years undiagnosed is because, you know, I'm a non-binary woman. So I was, you know, raised as a assigned female at birth. So socialized as a girl, quote unquote, even my understanding again of ADHD was gendered of how you're supposed to be. Um, and autism was certainly, you know, I wasn't like Rain Man and I wasn't like any of these, the, the, the quirky Silicon Valley guy or Sheldon or anything, you know, like, so, you know, Lighted Up Blue was selected part or large in large part because of particular gender that is, you know, diagnosed more. So people who are women and girls are diagnosed far less frequently. They're diagnosed later less likely to get services because people are looking out for a particular presentation. So if you're not, if if you don't look like what they expect autism to look like, then everyone's going to think that it's something else. So if you are a, a girl and you're obsessed with this band or you're obsessed with horses or whatever, that's socially acceptable, but maybe it feels less so for someone who was assigned male at birth. And then when you look at the, the racial piece, there are things in your, that are about your characteristics of neurodivergence that are going to be attributed to behavioral problems or cultural differences or anything but what they are. For me, for example, tone of voice, um, like a lot of autistic people, like, you know, it's hard to have the quote unquote Goldilocks or whatever right tone of voice. You're either like way too loud or way too quiet some of the time. And so, but when I got loud, it wasn't seen as, you know, having the, the, the difficulty regulating that is, a, you know, that is one of the characteristics of a disability. It was, she's Black. They're loud. They're ghetto, whatever. You know what I mean? I'm just putting it out there. Some of the movements or um, stereotypy can be viewed in a particular way, um, in a negative way that can be very dangerous. And so a lot of what someone might recognize as a meltdown or as a, a, a self-regulation method or whatever could be seen as aggressive behavior or, or something. And so when you look at the fact that every time you, the more intersectional identities that you have that are marginalized, so the, the more, like if you look at race, gender, and disability, the more that they intersect, the more likely it is that there's going to be suboptimal outcomes. You're going to look at um, the likelihood that that person's going to have the same type of educational attainment as someone who isn't that race or isn't that gender or both is, is different. The likelihood that they're going to be a homeowner or they're going to not be in the criminal justice system or all of the different you know, markers, social determinants tend to be at higher risk um, because of these things, because of the fact that there are certain things that are misunderstood and needs that are unmet for your race already, and then disability on top of that, or your gender and so forth. So it's really important that we look at all of these things and not just one. So when we're talking about things related to autism or ADHD, we, I, think it's, I think it's irresponsible for us if we don't look at the fact that aside from whatever circumstances that we might be facing in our own home or our life with our own children, it's not acceptable that X amount of uh, black and brown children with the same diagnosis are going to have out of school suspension or are going to be get the wrong diagnosis and not get the proper services or going to be diagnosed late. That's just not acceptable. You know, even if it doesn't personally impact us, it's just not it's not something that I think we should be comfortable with. These things may not personally impact us, but they impact our society and therefore 
by default, peripherally, they're um, impacting us in some way or another. So we should care and ask these questions. And it shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be someone saying, well, this doesn't, ex- this, this doesn't include me, or I don't understand this, or I don't see myself in this. It, you know, it shouldn't be, the person shouldn't have to do that. Those of us who are around should be able to look and see what's what gaps are there, what's missing, what's not being addressed, what's not being mentioned here, and not wait for it, someone to be left out before we call attention to it or try to learn more about it or care more about it and talk about it. So good. Thank you so much for sharing that. And yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, just it, even on the show, we've been having a lot more conversations about intersectionality. I definitely feel like I've been doing this podcast for almost six years and, you know, really been more involved in the neurodiversity movement. And I feel like there is good momentum around richer conversations, talking more about intersectionality, talking about the lived experience of many marginalized groups. Do you see good momentum in that area? I see growth. I feel like it's getting before I think it wasn't even a concept that people really spoke about or even were cognizant of. Now I think people are talking about it and they're asking questions, they're learning. I feel in some ways it's kind of performative because it's like people don't want to dig deeper. Being aware of it, it's like autism awareness is great, but we need acceptance. Awareness just means you know something exists. But you could hate it. You know, like the KKK knows I exist. (laughs) They're aware of me. And that's not a comforting feeling, (laughs) you know, because just because they're aware of me doesn't mean they accept me or like me or, or anything of that nature. So I think people are becoming more aware but they, um, but we need to kind of make more space to amplify the voices of those who are most impacted, and to to understand where we need to learn and grow, where we need to where we need to step back and be quiet, and where we need to step forward and provide you know support and um, and just kind of evolve. As humans, we're always growing, we're always learning. You know, as living things, our cells are you know are, are being new ones are being developed, and other ones are being are dying and breaking down and so forth. And our knowledge needs to to do the same. You know, we never we should never be static. And so I think people find it disconcerting to realize that they something they thought was one, one way is a different way or that things have changed or they there's you know something problematic about something that they believed or that they knew. And, and people feel hurt and judged. And I don't think that we need to do that. We just need to let it, you know, it's, it's self-correcting. That's what we, we just need to do is like acknowledge growth and keep it going. Keep it moving. Yeah, 100%. If it feels uncomfortable, lean into that discomfort, right? That's a that's a sign that the growth is actually happening. Absolutely. Well, listen, I want to respect your time and and wrap this up. First of all, I just want to say thank you for such a wonderful conversation. And listeners, there's so much more that we could have talked about. I mean, I, you know, in researching and preparing for this interview, your body of work and the hats that you wear, it's really inspiring how involved you are and what a leader you are. I would love if you could just tell listeners if they want to learn more about your work, what's the best way for them to do that? If you're on social media, I have to admit that I only use Twitter right now. So like, I feel like I have a TikTok account and all that because my kids do like every second. Oh, mom, look at this. Look at this. Look at this. Is this okay? You know, but I don't, I can only have so much emotional bandwidth to keep up with content. So I am at Morena KGO, which is for like more Nike and then go on Twitter. Um, I, um, I have a LinkedIn page. Um, I don't really use much of my other social media accounts. They are just kind of stagnant <laughs> there. Like my Instagram and Facebook and just kind of sit there. But I do have a website and it's um, Morenike Geo. So like, again, like morenikegeo.com. And on there, there's information about how to reach me. I'm involved with a, a number of different groups. And um, so I have some of the links to those um, organizations because there might be something that something of interest that someone might want there. Um, and then I have a resource page as well um, with some general information. One thing that I always like to point people to if, if they go there, either to my page on the resources section or they could just find it on their own by Googling. But there's a, a book list by a Megan Ashburn, who is not an autism mom and her website is not an autism mom.com. And so she runs a book club about, um, you know, neurodiversity and autism. And she has like more than a hundred different books that, you know, collectively members of the book club have suggested. And she's curated this list and it's a really neat list. It's got books for little kids. It's got books for adults. It's got books in English and Spanish and some, 
them, you know, books that are related to certain topics. I just, I just feel like it's really good and people can check that list out. So, you know, if they, again, it's linked on my page, we can find it elsewhere. If they just wanted to learn more, find out more resources um, about, you know, neurodivergence and parenting and all of those things. Yeah, listeners, definitely check out the resource page. It is very rich. There are a lot of links on there, all kinds of things, PDFs, websites, book suggestions. Um, so that is a, a great way to, to learn more as well. All right. Well, Marina Gay, I just want to say thank you so much again. And I know you have a busy, full life. I'm going to let you get back to your day. But I just really appreciate everything that you shared with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. If you want to dig deeper into this episode, check out the show notes page. Every episode has a dedicated show notes page on my website where you can get links to all the resources we discussed, read a transcript, and even easily go back and listen to key takeaways by using the chapters feature on the podcast player. To get to the show notes page for this episode, just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this show. If you love this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. For as little as $2 a month, you can help cover the cost of the hosting platform for the show, my wonderful new editor and producer, Andrea, and more. It's so easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash tiltparenting to learn more or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. If you're into social media, you can follow Tilt Parenting at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter. Visit the Tilt Parenting page on Facebook or join my Facebook community called Tilt Together. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by subscribing and leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information, visit www.tiltparenting.com. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.